This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks, and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural, and always free from sweeteners, fillers, and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T dot com. Use the code FABULOUSLY10, that's one zero, to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases. Not valid on subscribe and save. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 175 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And the reason we're having a replay today is because I'm really unwell and can't do anything for the podcast. Most of it is done and it will come out next week, the new one. But I just haven't been able to finish it off. I've been unwell since Thursday and it's now Monday when I record and I'm still not well. So I just looked through some of the old podcasts. And when I saw this one, it jumped out at me as, yeah, this is going to be the replay. So if you haven't heard it before, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have heard it before, I hope you enjoy re-listening because there's some great nuggets in there. So over to the episode, which was originally 101. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto Podcast. This is episode 101. <laughs> Jackie, we've made it. it, We're in triple figures now. So we've just ticked over. It's like you know, watching the clock on the on the car, the 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 miles ticking over. Uh, So we are now one hundred and one. And today, Jackie, we are interviewing um, someone who you met recently at the Public Health Collaboration Conference, Tony Royal. Yes, I met him because I don't know why I I said I wanted to invite him on the podcast. I didn't realize he was speaking at the event. So I invited him to come on. And then the next day he did his presentation. And I just thought, wow, I am so glad I asked him to come on because he's got such a fabulous story. But you sat next to him. At the 2018 conference dinner. And it was this sort of one degree of separation when, when Jackie said, oh, I'm going to interview, you know, we're we're going to interview Tony. And um, it's like when you were telling me a bit about his story, it's like, 
I sat next to him at the dinner. So it was just serendipitous that, um, you know, the, the one degree of separation was happening. And the serendipity continues because obviously from Dr. Asim's book, The Staten Free Life, he tells Tony's story in in the book. And it's just like, yes, here, here we have these one degrees of separation and all, all those worlds were colliding with our interview today. Mm. When I first listened to Statin Free Life, I obviously heard all about Tony, but it didn't register. But when I listened again, it's like, ah, yes, that's Tony. So Jackie, why don't you tell us a bit more about Tony? Dr. Tony Royal, PhD, is a former electrical engineer and both military and civilian pilot. He flew three operational tours on the RAF C-130 aircraft before joining Virgin Atlantic to fly the Airbus A340 and A330. Whilst a pilot, he pursued a parallel academic career in the sciences and mathematics and is currently an associate lecturer with the UK's Open University, tutoring on their M. SC Mathematics course. He is also an ambassador for the Public Health Collaboration, specialising in the use of the ketogenic diet to prevent and treat illness. He is a published author and international amateur age group triathlete. Let's go and hear from Tony. Welcome, Tony, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on today. It's a, it's a great pleasure. And we always start with where in the world are you? I'm in a place called Malmesbury, which is uh, quite a historical town in uh, in Wiltshire in, in the UK. Uh, it's centred around a, an old abbey on top of a hill, surrounded by a river. Very oldy worldy. So I'm, I'm very lucky to live in this part of the world. It's just on the edge of the Cotswolds, which is a beautiful area in Britain. Um, and it's a beautiful day here as well, as I speak to you. Yeah, sounds idyllic. Mm. You're lucky that it's actually nice where you are. Well, you know, here <laughs> down under, we're still in the in the midst of a very chilly, chilly winter. So when Jackie was saying how lovely and summery it is, I'm I'm looking at envy, you know, <laughs> with the sunshine coming in. Well, we don't often get it, but it's nice when it does come. Yeah. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your journey and how you came to low carb keto, however you define your way of eating. Okay, well, I started out life as, a, as an engineer and then um, very quickly joined the, the military, the RAF, as a pilot um, and eventually ended up flying for Virgin Atlantic as a civilian pilot. I started flying with Virgin in 1999 and, and I went through to 2014 and it was Christmas Eve on uh, 2014 and I was in Cape Town on a trip. Um, and normally when I'm in Cape Town or any sort of location, I used to I jog, I you know, go, I go out, I do some exercise. And th- on that particular trip, I didn't feel 100%. I wasn't, I wasn't too poorly, but I just didn't feel myself. Um, and it was, a, it was a, a, a usual sort of interesting, happy trip home with, for the passengers who are all going back for Christmas or visiting the UK for Christmas. Um, and I was dressed up as an elf and all sorts of wacky things that the crew do to make the, the flight interesting for the, for the punters. And I landed back at Heathrow about half past six in the morning and drove drove home. And it was Christmas Day then, obviously, and I was looking forward to Christmas Day with the family, etc. Um, and I went to bed. And then when I woke up, I, I felt like I'd been beaten up. I felt like I'd been in some sort of boxing match. It didn't feel at all well, but because it was Christmas Day, I cracked on with it. 
but I made a note to go and see the local GP uh, once the sort of surgery opened again. And when I turned up at the surgery, um, the, the GP said, I think you should go straight to, to A&E, basically. And uh, I think, you know, you, you need to be looked at. So I, I toddled off to the local hospital. And um, sure enough, they ran their tests. And it turned out that I'd had a heart attack when I was asleep, probably, on, on that morning. So I was lucky I didn't have it when I was actually flying. But um, nevertheless, that, that sort of stopped my flying career in its tracks. Mm. Because you need, you need to have a certain medical category to fly an aeroplane. And um, my heart was in such a bad shape that they wouldn't they wouldn't grant me that anymore. So that stopped my flying career. So that trip from Cape Town was my last ever trip at the controls of an aeroplane. And of course, I wasn't expecting that. So it was quite a shock to the, the system in many ways. But it served to open a lot of doors. Um, and I think the the journey in terms of the keto and stuff, that's that started at that point because I was placed on the usual post heart attack regime of various drugs that do various things. And after a certain period of time, they started to make me feel very poorly. I had to work that out. I had to work out that it was the drugs that were making me poorly. But once I'd worked that out, um, then that started a, a chain of events, which led me to the, the ketogenic diet. So what, what led you to believe that they were the, it was the drugs because you quite reasonably might think it was the heart attack that had done that. Well, initially I felt I felt okay after I'd um, sort of recovered from that the, the shock. I didn't I didn't feel too much different, and it was just over a period of about nine months I started to go downhill. I, I made the decision to carry on with my sort of exercise plans, and that involved a half Ironman triathlon event, which a lot of people thought was stupid going along down that pathway by. I couldn't really see any reason why I shouldn't carry on with those aspirations. Um, and so I did a half Ironman in, uh, in the August of 2015, it was then. Uh, but I never really recovered from that. And actually, I, I got to the point where I thought I was dying of something horrible. I was either dying of something really nasty or it must be the drugs. And once I started to just probe around a bit with the biochemistry of what these drugs did and how they acted on my body, it became blindingly obvious very quickly that the statin was a probably the key one of the of the cocktail of drugs I was taking to look at in more depth um, and once I started looking at the statin and how it acts on the biochemistry of the body it was uh, it was blatantly obvious that that was probably the key source of all the symptoms I was feeling what were the symptoms that you were feeling um, I didn't have any energy or any drive any libido I couldn't I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning, which is not like me at all. I'm very much an up and go, go at it sort of guy, and um, and sort of associated with that lack of energy, I was getting a lot of aches and pains. My my big muscle groups were aching, my quads, my glutes, uh, and if I tried to do any exercise, I couldn't recover. Normally, I recover very well, and I just wasn't recovering from anything. Um, I I was getting colds and stuff I get getting you know picking up bugs and not fighting them off as I would normally do so my I could just feel my body generating and I think the final straw was when I teach a lot of maths and stuff like that an A-level student asked me a very basic question and I my brain is like it, it's frozen I couldn't actually process the question let alone formulate an answer for this person and that night I just sat on the end of the bed crying because I just knew I was falling apart I couldn't think straight I couldn't operate 
so I was, that was probably the lowest point in my life, I think. That would have been around about October time in uh, 2015. And you were how old when, like, at the end of 2014, so when you had the heart attack? I was sort of mid-50s, 54-ish, around about there, I think. Sure. Any history, family history of heart heart disease in your family? No. No, there was no... um, there's no sort of genetic, if you want to call it that, or hereditary type issues for my heart. So, um, yeah, I, it was unexpected because I was doing everything that the, the system tells you to do in terms of diet and lifestyle. Obviously, you stray. You, you probably want too many beers now and again. And uh, I was, well, looking back, I was actually quite a bit overweight, although I carried it quite well. I didn't look particularly overweight, but I was. I was an ex-rugby player, so I, I was sort of naturally big. Um, but when I look back, I, it's obvious that I was metabolically unhealthy at that point. And actually, when I did the looked at the numbers, I was pre-diabetic. I was obese on the, the classic sort of BMI type scale. Um, and obviously, my heart was shot to pieces in terms of atherosclerosis. But you, you were quite athletic at that time, weren't you? I was doing. Uh, I was doing sport. I was doing triathlon. I was playing basketball. I was skiing. So I was doing lots of sport. But look, looking back in hindsight, I was struggling to to sort of be competitive in anything that I did in terms of, you know, if I looked at my peer group in an event, I just wasn't up there with, I wasn't winning anything. And, and I can see why now, because I, I wasn't actually that fit or well underneath the surface, even though I was carrying on. Um, and I, I didn't really anticipate that what, what was around the corner when I probably should have done if I'd have been, been a bit more attentive. But you, but you were having your annual medicals, you know, to, to be able to do your your flight, you know, being flight crew, so air crew, yeah. you were having annual, annual medicals. Um, what was your sort of your, your diet? You know, were you eating your five and two? You were following the eat well plate apart yeah, was, from, you know, the yeah. social drinking? I'd say I was following the eat well plate almost Exactly. So I was on low fat diet. If I bought a yogurt, it was a low fat yogurt. Of course, I, and now I realize it was high sugar. Um, I was avoiding saturated fat. I was trying to avoid cholesterol. I was, you know, all of this type of stuff. I was doing the fruit, lots of fruit, um, doing lots of exercise. And so the, the diet and the exercise and the general lifestyle and was, was what people would say, yeah, you're doing a good job there. You, you're doing the right thing. Um, and yeah, I, 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 in terms of the medicals, I think that might lull you into a false sense of security because you're being seen by a doctor every six months. It was then that when you get over 50, you have to go twice a year to have ECGs, blood tests, eye tests, hearing tests, all of these things. And actually that year I'd gone down in the UK, we have like a, a health checkup uh, when you reach a certain age where they just look at all your lifestyle habits and look at your heart and look at your lipids and things. And I just had that literally um, um, two months before my heart attack. And they told me I, I was really low risk because I'm doing everything right. So you're, you're low risk. Don't worry about your heart, et cetera. You're going to be fine. And then literally within two months of that and within about three or four months of my previous air crew medical, there I was on a, on a table with a, with a cardiologist sticking a stent in my heart. So just goes to show you that yeah, <laughs> even with all that, sort of apparent testing and reassurance it's not necessarily true mm. so once you'd worked out that it could be the drugs what did, what did you do then 
Well, that was quite an intense period of research. I didn't just arbitrary. Nothing I've done has been arbitrary. It's all been based on science. The difference is it's based on science that's not biased. Uh, We're all subjected to to raids of science, follow the science, hear that all the time. But it's what science are you following? Um, and I, I think my my key thing was to say, okay, let's put, let's start with a blank sheet of paper because I don't know what's going on here. I've been following what I'm supposed to follow, and that didn't work. So obviously that's not right. And and so that I think the trick was to just just disassemble everything I thought was true start with a blank piece of paper and then build it up from basic science and basic research. And I was luck- luckily, parallel to my flying career, I was an academic, um, math, physics, chemistry type stuff. And I, I was doing some research at the time. So I had access to all of the data, all of the papers that I needed to look at. That was what, that was really key to, to how I was able to work out what was going on. And, and so I started looking at each of the drugs, looking at the, how they act biochemically and the sort of possible side effects. And the focus really came on a thing called the mevalonate pathway, which is the pathway which generates cholesterol, builds cholesterol for the body, uh, amongst many other things. Um, and once I got that, that sort of picture in front of me, it was obvious that that was a key area to look at in terms of what was causing me to be poorly. Um, and the other drugs that went alongside the statin, uh, they're, they're, they're basically things that uh, adjust your blood pressure or heart rate, that type of thing. Um, but before I had the heart attack, I had no problems with those parameters. So I went back to the cardiologist and said, why am I taking these other drugs? I know why you've given me a statin because you think cholesterol causes heart disease. But why are you giving me the other ones? And it was just a statistical thing. There was no medical reason why I should be taking those other drugs, really. Um, there was one drug that stops um, stops the stent becoming a focus of, of coagulation. Um, that made sense because obviously the body's got something foreign in it and it, it might be a focus for clotting. And so I could understand that that drug, that was clopidogrel. Um, but that, that um, sort of that drug runs out of efficacy after about 12 months. So I was due to stop taking that anyway. Aspirins and stuff, this is all to do with thinning the blood and giving you a better chance of surviving another, another blockage. But they can, they can do damage to your stomach, etc. Um, and then you've got the things like the, the beta blockers and the ACE inhibitors and stuff. But, but they literally were not required for me because there's nothing wrong with my pressure or heart rate. Um, and so once I'd worked it all out, I just weaned myself off all of these drugs one by one over a period of time. And so by by the time I'd got into 2016, I, I was drug free. I wasn't taking any drugs. Did you do that with your doctor or did you just do it by yourself? I did it. I did it independently by myself because I knew exactly what the doctor would say if, if I went back and said, I'm not I'm going to do this. It sounds crazy, which they subsequently did. but. Um, I think I thought that if I went back to to the medical profession, I'd just get the same mantra, the same dogma, uh, and I wanted to really build this up myself without those influences. Just looking at the basic science, looking at the basic biochemistry, and saying, "Now, what does this tell me?" Uh, without any bias, what does it tell me, and how should I act? And that's what it told me to do. Um, and I was prepared to take the risk with my own body because I, obviously I was the experiment. Um, and if, if it went horribly wrong, it would be me that suffered. 
Um, and so, and so I took that approach and then decided once I'd felt the effects of what I was doing to then go back to my doctor and say, look, I'm doing this. And it seems to be working out quite well for me, yeah. which I subsequently did. So I, I think it was about May time of 2016 when I actually went to the GP and said, you know, look, this is what I'm doing. What do you think? Uh, and of course, you can imagine his response. <laughs> I can imagine. So from the time that's stopping or weaning or tapering, so you tape it off the, yeah. the drugs, so you didn't yeah. obviously stop everything. You you obviously may have done a bit of a washout. To that May appointment with your GP, what then, you know, when you compare and contrast the drug you know, what, you know, the, all those side effects to how you were feeling by the time you got to May with your GP. What what were the, um, I felt the differences? I felt fantastic. Mm. I was back to my old self, really. Um, everything felt good. I felt healthy. Um, all the aches and pains had gone. I had all the energy had come back. The libido had come back. So, you know, I could think straight. So every, everything had come back to, to pre-heart attack days. I felt fine. Um, but of course, the problem at that point was that I still hadn't investigated the cholesterol stuff. So I still, I thought at that point, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in real trouble now because I've taken, I've taken out the statin, so my cholesterol is going to go back to where it was. And at that point, I thought that was what caused the heart attack. Mm. And so the next part of this journey was to find out a little bit more about cholesterol. And when I started to uncover that stuff, that's when I really woke up to what was going on. And yeah. this is the crux of what I call it. It's, it's, it's basically been fraud for many, many decades, this story about cholesterol and heart disease. It's just not true. And when you really look at or try and find the evidence, it's just not there. And mm -hmm. there's so much contradictory evidence that's just marginalized or just pushed to one side to conveniently keep perpetuating this myth. Um, and so once I'd worked out that cholesterol wasn't a demon, in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's one of the most important molecules in the human body, I think. Um, yeah, because that, without it, we die, don't we? Yeah. You, our brains are pretty much made of the stuff and it has huge um, functionality in, in keeping the integrity of a cell, uh, particularly the cell wall, you know, intact. In and it's the precursor for many, many important drugs in our body. So if you interrupt the production of cholesterol, you don't just interrupt that production you interrupt the production of everything that it subsequently produces things like vitamin d and uh, things like progesterone testosterone estrogen they all come from this molecule called cholesterol um and the statin as an aside here it doesn't just affect the production of cholesterol it affects the production of coenzyme q10 and, and the thing called dolichol um and the these two things are, are essential in themselves coenzyme q10 is an essential component of the electron transport chain and without Without that component, you can't generate energy in your cells. And so the big muscle groups, this explains why um, I think people get muscle aches when they take statins. I think it's linked to the coenzyme Q10 deficiency that that produces. And if you go down the dolichol pathway, you see how essential that molecule is for brain function. So that explains why I couldn't think straight. And if you follow this pathway down, you can find the reasons probably why you get all of these symptoms from that, that one drug. Um, but going back to the, the cholesterol, that once I'd worked out that cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease, that of course released me to start looking at the, the best diet to, to go on to, to move forwards. Because if you think cholesterol causes problems, 
then that, that steers you away from what actually are the best diets, the, the most healthy diets. Mm. So once you were um, uncovering all of this, how were you feeling, you know, in terms of you were saying about obviously the myths, you know, what was being perpetuated, it was fraud. How, how were you feeling when you were sort of, you know, unravelling this ball of I think I, I lies? Felt pretty, I think I felt pretty stupid to start with. I thought, you know, I, I, I've put a lot of effort into many academic pursuits and the one thing, the most important thing, <laughs> which is our health, without our health, we can't do anything, can we? And that's the one thing I'd ignored. And that's the one area I'd put my trust in other people, really. I, t- I trusted the doctors. I trusted the scientists in that field to come up with what was the, the best truth at the time. And I believed it without question. And that's un- unlike me. I don't normally believe stuff without looking into it. But this was the one area. And that cost me, obviously. I could have died because I'd chosen to ignore it. Um, and so th- there was that side of it. I'd been stupid myself. So I was beating myself up for not really paying attention. I can attention. imagine. Uh, and also, imagine. Uh, yeah. so carry on. Sorry, go on. I think, yeah. It, so uh, that, as, as well as beating myself up, I, w- I was then a little bit annoyed in, in the profession. I was frustrated with the, the medical profession that they had allowed that perpetuate because there must be lots of people in that profession who know what I knew. It didn't take me long to work this out. So it, they're, they're very clever, intelligent people, medical professionals. And so if I can work it out, they can work it out. And to me, I, it appeared that a lot of these people had chosen to ignore it, conveniently ignore it for whatever reason. And so I felt a bit let down by the, by the medical system. Um, and and so that's where I was. I was in a, in a bit of a ah, frustrated state, uh, angry at myself and angry at, at the profession for not not being open and honest with me. Yeah. Do do you think the medical profession just have bought into the advertising by the drug companies to get people onto it, rather than actually doing the research like you did? Do you think they've just bought into the hype that everyone else has bought? We've all bought into over the time. Yeah, this is a multifactorial problem. And I've looked really hard at this and to try and explain why this, this might happen. I think one of the key points is that we, we've made a very stupid decision to give the pharmaceutical world control over the education of our medical professionals. That's the key thing. Because all of the all of the practice that comes with medicine is driven by research and education but if all the research and education or nearly all of it anyway is paid for by an entity that has a vested interest in us being unhealthy mm. that's the most ridiculously stupid thing to do so our research and our education should be completely independent of any vested interest that's going to make profit from our ill health um, and that's the solution to, to the problem going forward. We've got to have independent research so you can research what you like and you're funded to do that. And then you're not biased in the way you report that research. Yeah. Um, because if you want to research anything these days, not just in the field of medicine, if you don't, if you don't comply to the, the fundamental dogmas of that subject, you just don't get the funding. And uh, allied to that, you're not published in the major journals. So, uh, all of this sort of ties together to give a, a biased impression 
to, to doctors and to the general public about what the truth is in the subject. It's a completely biased representation. And so the problem starts from birth because doc doctors, we're all, we're all sort of brainwashed from birth to believe certain things are true. And so doctors have gone through their early childhood and, and adolescence thinking that cholesterol causes heart disease. They then arrive at medical school and they assume that that is a truth. Yeah. And then the professor in front of them tells them that cholesterol causes heart disease. And no first year undergrad is going to stand up and go, hang on a minute, that's nonsense. And so they just go along with it. And of course, they're so busy learning the names of enzymes and stuff that they haven't got time to do any sort of basic fundamental research into the, is this actually true as a premise? And then they come out and they, they put a lot of effort into their career uh, and they don't want to screw it up by becoming controversial. And so they just go along with it and they, they don't have the time then to go back and say, oh, let's, let's, let's take this apart and see if it's actually true. And so you get this cohort of GPs who all think the same thing and they don't question it. And then all the literature that they read is biased. And so it's backing up this, this false premise. Um, and that's how it perpetuates. And then you get the odd one that says, hang on a minute, this isn't right. And this, but as soon as they say that, of course, they become they become sort of demons in their profession. They're marginalized. Oh, nobody wants to be with that guy. He's the crazy guy. He's you've seen what he's written. And you won't get published in the journals. Um, and you know, you just get a hard time. And so you can understand why these people don't want to go down that pathway. And and then you've got the other aspect, which is many doctors have made their whole career out of telling their patients, genuinely believing that this is what the patient should be doing for their own good. And now for that, for that person to realize that for 40 years, they've been giving people the wrong advice about diet or whatever, that's a very difficult pill to swallow. Um, and I think a lot of them just think, you know what, well, I'm just going to see this, see this out now for the last couple of years. I realize I've done wrong, but I, I'm not, I can't admit it now. I look a real fool. And I think all these things play together to allow these sorts of myths and and that they're just not right these things to just perpetuate over time and this is, this is literally over decades this has been going on we've known for decades that cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease yeah. we've heard obviously the stories of you know reflective insightful medical professionals you know dr unwin you know professor noakes um gary fetke from australia where yeah. they have said you know yeah, that was that was then, but this is now, and this is where you know they're trying to to remediate the situation by their advocacy and yeah. Um, yeah. So so that work in that medical space, and yeah. obviously um, Asim Mahotra as well. But hearing your story, I suppose that that's that's one thing from the medical profession who are obviously in their practice, you know, going along and thinking that they're doing the right thing, wherein actual fact you know the power as you've said doesn't rest with the patient you know the power doesn't rest with you because you're beholden to this power differential the doctors prescribe the doctors yeah. provide the treatment did you what if any pushback did you get from your gp when you said look you know this is may 2016 i've stopped this medication i've taken back control i've yeah. I'm a critical consumer. I am now no longer health illiterate. You know, I've improved my critical health literacy and you're wrong. Mm. What, how, how did that difficult conversation go? Yeah, it didn't, didn't go down very well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can a, imagine. I, my, my GP at the time, he's, he's a lovely guy and he's a, he's a sort of a friend almost, but uh, 
you know, I think his attitude was, I haven't looked at it myself, the, the doctor. He hadn't looked at it himself in any great depth. He said, but are you seriously telling me that you know more than all of these people, these eminent professors, and that have told me that this is the truth? And I said, I'm saying, yeah, yeah, they're all wrong. And which sounds ridiculous to a doctor. He said, well, how can you possibly know that? So he thinks I've gone, uh, you know, I've lost my mind. Uh, and he genuinely wants to help me. And his genuine belief is that to help me, I need to take these drugs. That That's his best solution for my well-being. And that this story developed then over the next couple of years where I, I got increasingly stronger evidence that what I was doing was correct. And the thing that really annoyed me was the fact that the evidence was being ignored. And as a scientist, you don't, you can't ignore contrary evidence. If you've got a hypothesis, somebody comes along with a contrary piece of evidence, you have to explain it. You can't just dismiss it and go and carry on with your hypothesis saying this is true. Mm. And I, I, so I kept presenting the data because I've taken all of the data and saying, look, this is what's happening to my body, doctor, doing this. And according to your science, this shouldn't happen. So you have to explain to me why correct. your hypothesis is correct and what I'm doing is not correct. But they didn't do that. They just said, oh, well done, Tony. You're doing really well. That's remarkable. Now bugger off uh, because you're contradicting everything that we're telling everybody else at this Correct. Surgery. That must be so, so frustrating. That must. How? Yeah. Where are they now? Do you still see the do same doctor now as um, you did then? And then, where are they now on this? I've, I've, I, because I, because I've experienced such good health since I found out what, what promotes good health. I haven't needed to go to a doctor. So, you know, I, I, I've gone six years without taking any drugs at all. I haven't had a cold. It's just ridiculously. Uh, good period of health i've never experienced anything like it and I've, and but now i know why but that that sort of prevents me having to go and see doctors unless i want to get some data i want them to do a test of some sort sure or, um and so i just i just i just don't really see them in the professional realm anymore i only see them i've got friends who are doctors and we have conversations in the pub that's the only conversations i have with medical people unless i'm at a conference or unless I'm, you know, I'm lecturing and, and they want to chat with me afterwards. That's when I interact with the medical profession now because I'm never sick. Um. <laughs> but this is, this is where you are, the black swan, right? And, and that's what you're saying. You're the outlier and, you know, you're not just, well, you know, we know that there's not just, you know, one of you, but in terms of you're the anomaly and, you know, hey, you're that little data point that just doesn't seem to, you know, fit the yeah. fit the the line and you know but but yet you know coming off your medication and now you're six years since obviously um taking not taking anything and what are those um what is the data sort of saying you're, you're trending your hb1ac is good your cholesterol is good all those metrics are good yeah but you, but you see that their definition of what good is is not correct and so you know we are, we are conditioned to think that higher values of cholesterol are bad. And so, you know, people will say, oh, what's your cholesterol looking like? Well, my cholesterol is what it should be for my body on any given day. This is what people don't realize. There's this misconception that everybody's got to fit into this little box of what is average to be healthy. You know, mm -hmm. your, your cholesterol's got to be sort of four or five millimoles per liter for you to be healthy. And that's just complete nonsense. 
Because at any given time, we're all different. Our cholesterol will be what our body wants it to be, unless there's something seriously wrong or, you know, that it's, it's off the scale for some re- reasonable reason. But the 99.9% of the population have just got the cholesterol that their body needs. And as we change our age or our health status is changing, you know, more repairs required because we've been sick or whatever, all of these things, what we've eaten in the short term, these things play into what the cholesterol level in the body is at any given time. And two parts of the fraud that the medical profession are engaged in unwittingly most of the time is that they use the, the word high cholesterol. They say you've got high cholesterol, but you haven't you haven't got high cholesterol unless you've got familiar hypercholesterolemia or something like that, which is off the scale to the right. You've just got your level of cholesterol, which might be higher than somebody else's normal level of cholesterol. And there's a very big difference between having high cholesterol or having higher cholesterol than somebody else. Yeah. And, and, and the doctors have been sort of brainwashed to say that, that very phrase to their patients, oh, yeah, you've got high cholesterol. And that immediately makes people think, oh, it's high, it needs to be reduced. Yeah. So that's, that's the first part of this con. And the second part of the con is the good and bad cholesterol. This, this notion that's put into people's minds that there are two different versions of cholesterol and I need to remove the bad version of it. They don't realize that cholesterol is just one molecule. There's not versions of it. And this is the weaponization of language to make people more susceptible to a suggestion that they should take a drug. And the, the doctors need to be told that this is not acceptable. When I confront them, they say, oh, well, we've got to tell them this story because the, the people won't understand how complex the real story is. So we just make it very simple. Um, we think that this L- the LDL is bad, so we call it bad cholesterol. It's not cholesterol. It, LDL's got cholesterol in it. It carries it around, but that's not what LDL is. It's not cholesterol in itself, but it's called bad cholesterol. And this, this obfuscation of what the truth is it, it steers people towards a path of taking medication because none of us want anything inside us that's bad. But as soon as you label it as bad, people think, oh, I need right. to get rid of that. What can I do, doctor? Oh, take this drug. Mm. That'll get rid of it. That'll lower it. Mm. And that's that's the pathway that most people are, are led down. And so we need to be upfront with the language about what is going on. And I think that will help break down this myth because if people knew that cholesterol wasn't the problem, even if LDL was a problem, it's not in, in many respects, you know, at least make LDL the problem and, and then focus people on that rather than focusing them on cholesterol. Because if you focus on cholesterol, you steer people away from things like eggs. Eggs are fantastically healthy things to eat. But if you think cholesterol is a problem, you won't eat many eggs. Mm. And so it's this myth in the language, this obfuscation in the language, which, which, drives people into the wrong types of diets yeah and i think also we've got another thing going on here which is one most people that go to the doctor are sick so they're the people that are being looked at they're the blood um numbers that are coming in which are sick people so if you're healthy it's quite normal that you wouldn't fit in that range because if you're healthy you wouldn't be going to the doctor like you said you don't go the same as i don't go um, and then the other thing is, as more and more people, so we know that um, statins do reduce LDL. So as more and more people are on statins, 
So the numbers of the quantity of people whose LDL is lower increases, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a good thing. And so they're comparing the general population and the number of population into these numbers of what's normal. But we need to remember that what's normal for sick people. Yeah. And that these these bands, and this is not just in the lipid uh, domain, but any domain, thyroid, et cetera, any, anywhere where you've got these bands of normality, people don't grasp because they don't study statistics and stuff to any great depth. Most people don't like mathematics, so they, they just defer that to somebody else to worry about. But you have to understand the meaning of a, of a, a band of normality. Because if you haven't got a datum point so that the individual can reference from that data point, these averages are meaningless for the individual, really, unless they're extremes. But let, let me give you an example. If, if you go measure your cholesterol every day, and every day it's four, every day it's four, every day it's four, and then one day you go in and it's 10, that's useful information because you know it's four most of the time. But now it's 10. But if you've never had your cholesterol tested and you went in on that day when, when it was 10, you, you, you get the wrong impression because you don't know if 10 is normal for you or whether it's a big change from what's normal. Yeah. And so. But I think, I think it's asking the question, right? Like that, that's really, you know, rather than making a judgment, as you're saying, you know, it was four, four, four. Oh, it's 10. Oh, you know, let's just rather than going good and bad, as you're saying, we're making that judgment, that sort of almost, you know, that implicit bias that comes with, oh, that's a bad result, you know, yeah. that's high, and that comes with a judgment, and we have to action that to, to do that. But yeah. where we have the data and we've we've been tracking the data and then it's just like, oh, you know, I wonder why rather oh, than yeah. bang. Action, and yeah. it, it, this is this is really an interesting, you know, a colliery yeah. to this sort of story. Is I've been tracking obviously um, some series of of blood tests, and I happen to have a, a blood test since returning back to Australia, and my my liver my liver function was high, and on the um, telehealth the doctor says you've got fatty liver, and it's like what <laughs> just you know, yeah. and as you said, you know, where, you you know, statistically it's at the upper level. So whatever the, the intercortical range for that particular metric is, it's, it's just a, it's a little bit high. Yeah. And, I, and it caused me to go back to, um, what was it, October last year, so 21. I had some NHS um, data, f- you know, from May 19. I went even back to, to 18. And, it's you know, it was fine. This is just an aberration. Yeah. But all of a sudden, you have got fatty liver. And it's like, yeah. did you not know, you know, Jackie and I, well, Jackie, we started alternate day fasting you know most days i do 16 8 there is no yeah. way i can have any glycogen no in but, my liver but the average person will take that that advice and what happens is that they then go on to drugs before they need any help there's nothing wrong with them but they've gone on to a drug which then affects the biochemistry of the body uh, and then you get the, the disruption distorts the real picture and and as soon as you start taking drugs the disruption to the homeostasis of the body 
inevitably begats other drugs because you start to get other side effects because we don't understand how the body works. We pretend we do, but we don't. And so this is, this is a cascade then of disruption causing requirement for more drugs. And all it requires is at the start of this process, instead of jumping down this, oh, that you need medication, it's to say, why are you possibly displaying these things? What right. it's a lifestyle yeah. that might have right. led to this happening. Let's step back. Let's see what you're eating, what you're breathing, what you're drinking, hmm. what you know, who you're going out with, how are your stress levels, are you engaged right. with nature, all of this sort of stuff, and then say, hmm. okay, well, let, maybe it's the fact that you're doing this that's caused this problem. Let's just change that at home. Let's not give you a bottle of tablets. Let's just see if you can tweak this lifestyle a bit and see if that, and then let's measure it again, and let's measure it again. But that's not what happens. I think, you know, and that's really talking about that social prescribing and I think that, that is the non-pharmaceutical sort of thing so sleep stress and it interesting that you say that because obviously this that freaked me out like obviously my emotional reaction was there's no possible way that obviously you know that particular data point at that point was yeah sure it's high relative to all you know three years worth of other data points that I'd had you know, yeah, this was just an aberration. And there's no way that my lifestyle with um, intermittent yeah. fasting, coming off the back of, you know, almost six months of alternate day fasting, you know, this was just, it could be anything. And it's worth a follow-up and obviously, you know, maybe going back and maybe doing uh, maybe three months of fasting and taking another test. But yeah. it, it, it was like the emotion that comes with that discussion it was bad, you know, you've got this. And it's just like that just does not make sense. No. And also it's only that given moment in time, Louise. So if you went back tomorrow and had another blood test, it could be totally different. Exactly. And, you know, you get this with all sorts of parameters, things like blood pressure and heart rate and stuff. You know, people are sometimes frightened. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Blood pressure. Yeah, you do. You do. You're frightened, or if somebody's trying yeah. to stick a needle in you for whatever reason to take blood, absolutely, self can raise them. So there's so much distortion mm. in the data, uh, and we read too much into it. And this is one of the key problems in medicine: is that too much is read into the science, because most of the science isn't actually meaningful in a, in the true sense. It, a lot of it shows correlations. Very very little medical science shows causal. And so we're always correlating things, which is very interesting, but it doesn't actually explain the mechanisms that are going on. You, you, you change one input parameter and you measure one output parameter and you notice a correlation, but that doesn't tell you what happened between the input and the output. And there's all sorts of stuff going on in that intermediate. You know, the body's doing all sorts of things and we don't understand it well enough to know the implications of this, you know, change in this. So we give people a drug and we say, oh, there's no side effects, but we've got no idea what the side effects are because they're just not manifesting in a certain time period. Who knows what effects this, this drug might have? Because, you know, two years down the line, it might have disrupted some system and now you you present with some other illness because of that drug. But it's never attached to that drug because, you know, mm -hmm. the way they measured it and stuff that, oh, no, this, this isn't causing it. And then we get false illusions about what causes what and it's such a complex thing the human body and it's inherently able to look after itself all we need to do is not toxify it and make sure it's not deficient in anything it can't produce that's all we need to do and most people will then live a healthy happy life yeah 
So, but Tony, how how can people really? I think the message that I'm I'm getting from you is about being critical, like mm. as you said, you know, really unpacking the science, being that critical consumer, you know, in terms of being that health literacy. So, how can the regular Joe really, you know, be that critical consumer and and be health literate in that way? Well, I, I, I do appreciate that not everybody has a technical background in the sciences. And so they're not able to, as easy as I have, look at the science and look at the maths and make sense of it. But everybody is blessed with what I call an innate common sense and intuition. And I think people have been taught to dismiss those things in favour of the science. Mm. So they sort of know inside, they feel something's not right, but they haven't got the confidence to believe that, that it's not right because the science is telling them something else. Um, and, and so I, I always said to tell people, if it doesn't feel right to you, it probably isn't right. And you might not understand why, but you just don't ignore that gut instinct because that'll serve you very well. Um, and to, to really take ownership of your own health rather than delegating it to to a third party because there's the illusion that the third party knows you better than you do and that's not true you know yourself better than anyone um it's having the confidence to run with that intuition and and ask sensible questions if if you're not sure ask a question and and keep asking it until you get get an answer that you're satisfied with but i i'm being open and honest about this the way that we've set society up most people will delegate their medical problems to, to the third party because they believe that the third party knows better than them. And so the way to address this is probably from the other side, is to get the health professionals on the right page. Um, you know, things like diabetes, which I'm very, I'm often working one-to-one -one with people who've got type 2 diabetes. And it's so easy to help these people sort their lives out just with a tweak of their diet. And Whilst that is so simple to do, they've always got this contrary information from the system telling them exactly the wrong information. All of the dietary information for type 2 diabetics is nonsense. And so that's where we need to, to tackle the problem. We need to educate the people who are educating the patients. Yeah. Um, and that, that way, there is expertise that helping the problem. Because I know that people just don't have the confidence to think, oh, well, I know more than the doctor, so I'm just going to listen to the doctor. Um, you know, so that, that's what I would do. I'd, I'd try and tackle it from the other side as well as giving people the self-confidence to ask questions and take ownership. Yeah. So at what, at what point, because I know that you then spoke to Dr. Seema Holtra, who we had on last week, at what point did you do that and, and what was the reasoning behind that? Well, um, I decided to do an Ironman um, triathlon just to prove how uh, well my body was after I'd got onto the correct diet um, and the right lifestyle. Um, but I was getting very little help from most medical professionals. I was just getting told I was silly and I should go back on the medication and all this sort of stuff. But So I, I wanted to seek out a professional who might actually listen and have some idea about what I was saying and, and how true that it might be. And so um, I came across a scene um, of public health collaboration and um i thought you know i'm going to try and book an appointment with this guy and 
have a conversation with the cardiologist who might actually be on my side to some extent. Um, and so that started a very um, fruitful relationship, really, because he was he was very interested in what I'd done. Um, and he's a big advocate of, of not over prescribing drugs. Um, the allopathic regime, the way of doing things is is not his preferred way. Um, he's much more into the giving the patient more ownership of, of the problem, let, you know, helping the, the patient along a journey that the patient's driving rather than the other way around. And I, th I think he realizes uh, that the amount of corruption we have in the medical system due to the dominance of pharma. And I'm, I'm not, I, I don't knock pharma because they're just a business making money. They do that very well. It's not it's not digging at pharma. And we do need some of their drugs. You know, type 1 diabetics need their drugs. We need anesthetics. We need painkillers in certain Pain. Yeah, so it's 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 not that pharma's a bad thing. It's just the the relationship of pharma and the, the medical professionals. That's the thing that's wrong. Um, but but Asim has worked that out, and um, he's also prepared to stand up and and say it as it is as well, which is which is nice and refreshing. But we we've worked well together in many ways because he's been interested in monitoring my progress, which helps I think him to argue his case. Um, yeah. Did you do the Iron Man? Yes, I did. I did the Ironman in the, the first one in 2018. That was the Ironman UK. For those people who've not come across triathlon, an Ironman is um, 3.8 kilometers swim, 180 kilometers on the bike, and then a full marathon at the end. So it's a long day, um, 15 hours of torture, but it's very rewarding and it does push the body to its limits. Um, but the 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 one I did first of all, there was um, it was a very hot year again, and there was fires on the moors uh, up in uh, north of Lancashire, and so they had to cut the bike short route. It, it was supposed to be 112 miles, and they had to cut it to about 97 or something. And so I hadn't actually done in my own mind a full Ironman. I was a bit short on the bike, <laughs> so I decided to do Hamburg uh, the following year in 2019, um, and that was a, that was the full distance. Although it was 32 degrees, it was warmer than it is today here. Um, so that was a really tough race to do it in that sort of heat. Running a marathon in 32 degrees is tough after all no. that. Um, yeah, but um, I'm, I'm just exhausted just hearing <laughs> that, that. You know, the <laughs> fact that you know, but this is, but but the sense that I get is that this was about risk, that nobody was prepared to sort of to to go. Yeah, Tony, like you, you've taken back control. No worries. That's you. You've just as long as you understand that this is a risk by not being medicated. But the thing is, what you've done is to go back to the data, to, to make that judgment, analyse, evaluate, and you've accepted that risk. Whereas, obviously, doctors, the profession, is risk adverse because they don't want to be risking their practice, their licence, their their obviously their registration with the with the GMC. You know that this is this is all about the risk. Oh, yeah, it's interesting what you said there about the risk, and you focused on things that are not to do with health. You know, licences and no. all that. Yeah, and that's what they're averse to losing. That, but you know, they're giving information to patients, which is actually putting them at more risk. If you're telling somebody not to eat saturated fat and reduce cholesterol, you're putting them at more risk. Um, and so, 
And so it's yeah, it's, it's not their risk, that, it's yeah. your risk. Exactly. Because you know, because then they push the risk to you. Well, mm. clearly you've had a heart attack because you weren't compliant. Now yeah. that eat well guide, Tony, you had to eat your five and two <laughs> to get your healthy whole grains. Clearly, you weren't compliant to the eat well guide. That's why yeah. you had a heart attack. Yeah, but I, you know, I did, I did everything I did with a, with a lot of data backing. I, I didn't just again arbitrarily think oh, I'm going to do an Ironman and just go and do it. I did a lot of tests with cardiologists, with uh, the elite sport uh, unit at Bath University, and I kept monitoring my lipids and my heart rate and all, you know, and, and my metrics just went. They, they were unbelievable by the end of this journey. I mean, I was such in such good shape in 2019. It was unbelievable i was fitter than i was when i was 20 um and i you know i was getting i was winning races i was up in the top 10 percent in the world for i was it's just unbelievable change in my health and ability to perform as an athlete and i've got all the data and all the results and all the medals and everything else that goes with it uh, to prove that my body was in a really really good place in 2019 and it's interesting that all the metrics that the doctors look at all went in opposite directions to what they're science told them should happen so they told me if i ate all the fat my weight would go up yeah. and my weight went I, dro- I dropped from 15 stone to 11 and a half stone they said i'd get fat around the middle i put on belly fat and my waist went from 38 inches to 30 inches um they said my total cholesterol would go off the scale it was already eight you know and, and it went down to six and a half it went my hdl went up my ldl went down my triglycerides plummeted instead of going up so everything that they said would happen went in the opposite direction. Mm. And I knew why it was going in the direction it was going. That's why I was doing what I was doing. So it wasn't it's just luck that this happened. It happened because that's what the science says should happen. It's just that because they don't look at the science. Yeah. Because you engineered it. So this is this is part of the engineering your recovery. And yeah. I, I like that because, you know, you have um, obviously – um, my partner Andrew is an engineer, so I, I, I jokingly say to him, "Engineer me a solution, there, Andrew, for this yeah. problem." And yeah. that's what you've done. You have, you know, you've gone to it. You've, as you said, you you drew the systems. You've understood the biochemistry systems, the anatomy, the physiology systems, yeah. and you've absolutely re-engineered, you know, this post um, post heart attack recovery of yours. Yeah. So what? So talk about you know what you're eating now. You know what what's what what would be a daily sort of you know what's on your plate. Well, I'm generally ketogenic. Um, sometimes that's modified depending on the exercise. I tend to exercise fasted, and fasting you mentioned it earlier, Louise, is is very important in this. It's not just about what you eat and when you eat. It's, it's when you don't eat. Um, and so I do I do quite a lot of the intermittent type fasting that you mentioned, the sixteen eight type stuff most days, I guess. Um, and I, I tend to only have one major meal a day. That tends to be something like eggs and, and avocados, lots of olive oil, coconut oil, butter, lard. Um, if I have any fruit, I tend to put loads of clotted cream and double cream and stuff on top. So I, lo- I always load up anything that's got fructose or glucose with a load of fat to sort of modify its absorption. Um, um, and and. An evening meal would be something like steak and vegetables and vegetables tossed in, in bacon fat or something like that. Lots of butter on the top. And so I'm trying to get about 60% of my calories from, from good fats and about 25% protein and then about 15% uh, 
carbs and the carbs are generally leafy greens and the, the blueberries that's that's generally what my diet is my treats would be a glass of red wine occasionally and some dark chocolates mm. so what what tony had me tony <laughs> had me at clotted cream <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you found some the other day you had some i did um where was i uh, yeah i was i was away in spa country um that's in in victoria and um where they have the natural natural springs and we're in this uh little gourmet gourmet shop and i happened to walk to the fridge and there is um tasmanian dairy um does this uh, they do they do a delicious double cream but i knew that they do this this clotted cream but i haven't been able to find it in my local supermarket there was this like this little pot of gold and it's just like I carried it and paid a lot of money for it, not like rotters, you know, um, and it was just like I was transported back to, to rotters and, you know, at M&S. It was just absolutely delicious. So, I ate it all myself. And Andrew didn't get any. Tony, what led you down the path of the ketogenic diet? How did you get from where you were eating the eat well plate and doing everything that you'd been told to do, how did you get from there to where you are now? Well, I, rea- I realised that the um, carbohydrates, particularly the complex carbs, w- were the, the crux of the problem. That's why I was pre-diabetic. Um, it, it became very obvious that the carbs were the problem. Not all of the carbs have the same effect. So I started to really get into how important it is to choose the right carbs. Because, I mean, a lot of people's diets are, are sugar-laden. Um, and that sugar is often in the worst form possible, the white stuff on the spoon. You know, so people are adding sugar to stuff in its pure form. Um, so sucrose and, you know, glucose and fructose, these these things are dominating people's diets. And I could see that they were very dominant in my diet in various forms. Um, uh, and, and once I realized that that was the key cause of the damage, um, then it was a case of, well, if I'm not going to eat, I've got to eat the calories somehow. If I'm not eating the calories in the form of carbs, what am I going to eat them in? And then you've got two choices, one choice, you either have protein or you have fats. And, and so I just looked more and more into the fat, fat thing. And I looked at the evidence for the ketogenic diet, which is not, I mean, at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't out there. There was, there was a lot of um, research into other types of diets, but very little what I would call robust science in the ketogenic realm. Um, but it seemed to make intuitively more sense to me to be eating the fats once I got over the cholesterol phobia. Um, and it was also very tasty. It was a very tasty diet. Um, and, and again, I didn't arbitrarily just launch off. I did tests. I did a week, then a, then a two week test and a month test. And I did a, this towards the end of 2016 uh, to fit, to see how my body felt because I knew it would feel probably strange to remove all carbs. And sure enough, it did. I got the thing called the keto flu the first time. The second time, it wasn't as bad. Third time, I hardly felt anything as I did the transition. And every time I did it, I was measuring my HbA1c if I could. I was measuring my glucose levels. I was measuring beta-hydroxybutyrate in my body. And so I got a feel for how the diet worked and the way the parameters were moving. Um, and once I'd convinced myself this was probably the best way ahead, then in 2017, that's when I went full-blown on the keto diet and... Uh, I felt so good on it, 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 it seemed pointless to do anything else. Now, that's not to say that that's the, the, the only diet that's going to make you healthy. I think as long as you basically understand that if you eat in organic, local, non-processed foods, good healthy fats, not the, not the bad fats, 
you you can probably be just as healthy with any sort of diet but you know um so i I don't chastise people and say you must eat the ketogenic diet but i do know how powerful it is not just in terms of uh feeling good in terms of treating disease getting people back on track it's very powerful i think i've worked one-to-one with so many people now with all sorts of problems not just diabetes but with heart disease um epilepsy migraine cancer you know dementia alzheimer's all of these sorts of things are positively impacted by a ketogenic diet i don't think all diets have that uh, impact in that in that sense Mm, yeah and i want to just go back to the um iron man so did you have any did you had you done any iron men or iron man races before the heart attack no the longest race i'd done before heart attack was uh i think an olympic triathlon which is relatively uh, tame. Olympic triathlon's 1,500 meter swimmer, 40 kilometer bike, and a 10k run. So you know that you can get that done in in a two two and a half hours, something like that. So it, that's not nothing like an Ironman. But I'd planned to do a half Ironman before the heart attack, and I was in the process of training for that. Um, and it was only after I'd d- done the the half that I then subsequently set my heart on doing the Ironman. Yeah. Um, um, we've got we've got no data to know if your times improved or if you you know how you got through that. It would be interesting for you to go back and do the one you did before and see how that compares. Yeah, I mean it's it's a bit of a survival exercise to be honest. I mean to be competitive at Ironman, it's it's quite tough. I, I'm a, I'm hoping to to do the World Championships in 2024, and that will be a real test if if I you know if I am in holding on to this improvement. But all the metrics told me how how my body had responded to the ketogenic diet because things like my 5k time i mean my 5k time before i had the heart attack was about 32 minutes or something you know dreadful 32 minutes for five kilometers and i think i did 21 30 5k at some point in 2019 mm. 21 and a half minutes versus 32 or something that's huge massive. Yeah, massive. improvement that's for massive. 5k and for my age it was it was competitive. It's really competitive then, if you're running that fast. I did the Cardiff Half Marathon, and I was in the top couple of thousand out of 25,000 people of all ages. Mm. Some old codger like me was in the top 2,000. And I'm not really, really a runner, you know. It's, it's just an incredible uh, health. And the recovery is the thing. The ketogenic diet really helps you to recover from the, the strains and stresses of something like because uh, there's a lot of training for Ironman, you know, you, but, so you have to, yeah. be able to recover every day so you can carry on with the training. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and because of the anti, anti-inflammatory. Yeah, it is anti-inflammatory diet, yeah, because obviously I think, I think insulin is probably one of the big in, inflammatory things. If you're chronically exposed to insulin, which most people are because they're eating carbs all day, um, you know, I think that over time is, a, is an inflammatory process. So if you're... If you're not exposing yourself to insulin all the time i think that really helps calm your body down and helps your muscles to recover yeah i remember interviewing it was early on one of the first interviews we did with lou walker and she was saying how she'd done a marathon but just ended up in the hospital loads of people end up in the hospital but yeah. she didn't when she was ketogenic so she she didn't then didn't so yeah. that's quite interesting yeah the other thing is that these long distance things, if you're ketogenic, you don't have to keep stuffing carbs into your body, uh, which can really irritate your stomach and cause all sorts of issues with, with glucose levels. 
if you're just chugging along at a certain level of of intensity you can you can just live off your body fat you don't have to eat anything which is it surprises many people how little carbohydrate i take on board when i do these long distance events mm. very little compared to the the carb burning athletes so do you take things with you um when you're doing the long events to have some carbs um i'll only take carbs if i've got an intense an intense section to do where i know i'll really eat into the glycogen if i don't take the carbs because the body will always prioritize the easiest source of fuel and it's harder for it to oxidize fat than it is to take glycogen from source so if you've got glycogen in your quads and you're running then it'll take it from your quad glycogen rather than try and burn fat um and so if you if you're going on the bike and you're going up a really steep hill for an extended period where you've got massive effort it makes sense to give your body an instant source of energy so it doesn't you know start taking out the glycogen taking out the fat and so i i very much look at the nature of the event as to if i'm going to take carbs on so anything up to a half marathon i just i do faster than just hydrate i hydration is the only thing that's you know if you're on a hot day like today if i did a half marathon i would I would try and take some water on at some point, but that would be it probably. Yeah. So if you if you do need, so you've seen that there's there's this piece coming up, and you're going to need some carbs. What would what would you have, and would you make it take it yourself? I tried you to. I do, guess I thought, you wouldn't rely on the the drinks that they're giving out and things like that. Well, the sports drinks and gels, I mean, they're they're quite good if if you just want a one off fix, but they're not very healthy. So if I'm going to do a long event when I'm taking on more of this stuff, I try and make it natural. Bananas are a classic. Bananas are a really good source of slow burn carbohydrate that doesn't really irritate your stomach. So things like that are useful. If I want a real sugar type fix, I'll try and get something like Manuka honey into something, some mm-hmm. natural project that's, I mean, it's not necessarily good for you because it's sugar, but it, it's, a, it's a natural form which is not going to irritate irritate my body and doesn't contain any additives or preservatives or colorings or all this sort of stuff yeah one one of the things before we finish up one of the things you mentioned at the phc conference is that um comparing yourself as a pilot to today now you can't fly because you had the heart attack but you're actually much fitter and healthier than most of the pilots that are flying do you want to just talk about that yeah, it's a very interesting uh, issue because a pilot, particularly a long-haul pilot's lifestyle is not particularly healthy. You spend a lot of time sat on your backside doing not a lot. Uh, and there's all this upper-class food wandering around the place that you tend to nibble because you're bored. And then when you get to the other end, you like to have a wind down in the bar. And, you know, so it, it can be a very, what's well, a lifestyle that's, that could easily get you into overweight um not enough exercise eating too much of the wrong food all that type of thing um and so you do find quite a lot of pilots are not in the best health you can tell they're metabolically not very healthy and yet they are still able to go and have have an ecg in their heart you know the ecg looks okay their lipids are not too bad their their eyesight's not too bad but the thing is that pilots are very expensive commodities and so that the system doesn't like to just get rid of them arbitrarily on the basis of, basis of some random test at a medical. So they try and make the medical fairly easy for somebody relatively healthy to, to pass. But when you, if you put me alongside a lot of my colleagues, you, you would see, hang on a minute, how can he not fly and he can fly at, at face value? 
And it boils down to the rules and regulations that the CAA or the Federal Aviation Authority, whoever the governing body is, lay down as to what's acceptable and what's not. And they're very intransigent in terms of, oh, actually, this guy's probably turned this around because there's this there's this notion that you can't reverse something like heart disease. You can't make it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've got that that concept in at the start, then if you if you're a, a certain level of your heart was at a certain state that it can't go back the other way so it can only get worse therefore there's no way you're ever going to get your license back whereas i think if i pushed the test now and i forced them to look at my heart they would see that it it's much much better shape than it was when i had the heart attack and therefore i should be able to get my license back but then i i, I think well do i really want to go back to that lifestyle which probably contributed to the heart attack in the first place the disruption of the biorhythms was probably a contributory factor um, and I wouldn't have the time then either to do all the stuff I'm doing with the health and fitness and stuff. So yeah, yeah. it would be an interesting experiment to go back to it, but <laughs> I think yeah. I'll probably leave it. You know. And also just flying just at that altitude in an aeroplane is quite stressful for the body anyway. And changing time zones constantly. The time zones are the biggest stressor. And yeah, and your biorhythms are upset every you know week on week, not necessarily the same direction. Sometimes you go east, sometimes you go west. Your sleep patterns are, are disrupted. Your eating patterns are disrupted. Uh, you're up in, you know, your, alti- your altitude. The atmosphere is dry. You tend to live in hotel rooms, which you've got air conditioning, which is dry. And so the whole lifestyle is not particularly conducive to good health, really. No. Yeah. And we used to retire when we were 55, probably for good reason. But now, of course, you know, they, they, that as long as you've got your medical, you can fly as long as you want these days. Yeah. How can people get in contact with you if they want to? Um, um, I tr- I've tried to avoid uh, social media as much as possible because I find that um, it takes an awful lot of time and you get an awful lot of hassle on social media. You, it's very difficult to have a cogent argument that doesn't uh, be- become you know, counterproductive. So, But I do have a Twitter ac- account under my name, Tony Royal, R-O-Y-L-E. So it's Tony underscore Royal, I think, is the thing for that on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. If you search my name, you'll find me on there. I have got a Facebook thing, but I, don't, I very rarely go onto that. Um, I've got an academic email, which is tony.royal at open.ac.uk. It's my academic email address. So if anybody's got a question or want to get in touch, that's fine. I'm happy to to help wherever I can with, uh, with health-type questions or any other type questions, really. Brilliant. Thank you. It's very generous of you um, to connect with with the listeners. So let's leave now with three top tips. Yeah, top tips. That's um, there's so many things I would like to people to just think about. Um, I think I think what we mentioned earlier about trusting your intuition is a big thing. I I, I really encourage people to to. Just go with your common sense and intuition rather than being completely biased by the things that have been thrown at you by perceived experts. Um, That will stand you in good stead. I'd also encourage people to think of their body in a very holistic sense. Um, We tend to, to, in the medical world, treat things in isolation, and that's a very dangerous thing to do. So always consider your body as as a very complex whole entity uh, and and treat that entity rather than treating individual things so engage engage with nature um, get lots of good sleep surround yourself with people who, who give you love and you can give them love these sorts of things that 
calm your whole body um, and play into your whole health rather than focusing on individual issues, which can often often lead you down the wrong the wrong path. Um, and thirdly, I think t- take ownership of your health. You are the best arbiter of what's what you feel like. You know what you feel like. You know how your body responds to this, that, and the other. And just be the owner of that. Take responsibility for it. Uh, and then you'll make the right decisions for you rather than somebody else making the wrong ones for you. Mm, yeah, that's really important. And I think a lot of us in the low-carb world have done that. You know, we... we we find what works for us and we take and we take responsibility for it and if something goes wrong then that's that's on us yeah that's it's much better to do that than than blame somebody else it's very easy to say well you make the decision for me then i'll blame you when it goes horribly wrong it's much more empowering to do do the research and make the decisions for yourself we all make mistakes we all get things wrong but but having ownership of those mistakes is is very empowering in itself so uh, yeah don't be frightened to do that. Thank you, Tony, for such a, you know, taking us on your journey and, um, well, taking us and through the engineering or the re-engineering of yeah. your, um, your, certainly your recovery. Yeah. And um, we wish you, you know, all the best for 2024 for the next um, the next. Thanks so much. Epic, yeah, I'll, I'll, epic I'll marathon you know event. I and, uh, yeah, I do. Please. I do look, the engineering thing, I do look at the body in very much an engineer. As, a, as an engineer rather than as a doctor. And I think that makes a very big difference in the way you perceive how the body works. And so I look at the energy management system, you know, of the body. And I think looking at it from that perspective, again, gives you a, a lot of power, really, because you're not suckered into this sort of mantra. Yeah. I think those sorts of, I think the engineering, the systems, you know, the complex systems and the integration of those systems is a great metaphor for how you actually have re-engineered all of that. So I think that that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. But thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you. I lo- loved it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Jackie, I really am a little going to say inspired to think differently as tony does as a as an engineer you know he sees the world as a system a system whereby he was able to deconstruct it and reconstruct it yeah so to reverse engineer it to go back and work out what the solutions are yeah absolutely and i think where i see the the lessons from you know from what we've heard from tony today is to be the critical consumer. And, you know, the messages that we get from from Tony really resonate, of course, from what we heard last week with Dr. Asim, because being the critical consumer of the information that we receive, the health education or the, the government policies, or, you know, we can see that, you know, there's influences in the in the way in the messaging that we have but to be the critical consumer yeah and I, but i think it's hard for people because if they've had a heart attack they're in a very very fearful place and that place is often you know they they're looking to a doctor to advise them and give them help one because they don't know why it's happened and the other is they're they're assuming or as most of us do at some point assuming that the doctor knows what what's best but i think one of the things the 
threads that we pick up along the way is a doctor only knows what he's told. He only knows as much as his education has allowed him to learn. And it depends on the person that taught him. And, and so it goes on and we, that's how our education system goes, doesn't Evolves. it? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, yeah. We're taught by the, we believe the person that we're taught by who believed the thing that they were taught by, the person they were taught by. And so it goes on, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing. So Tony was able to, take all the advice that he was given and look at the data and look into the research and come up with a different response for him that worked for him yeah and i but i i like how you know as a as an engineer they they say that the here is the inputs here is the outputs you know and, and the throughputs but as you said i mean he was very well educated he sees the world as a system and using that sort of as a metaphor for what was happening to his body to look at what the inputs the, the throughputs and the systems that were in place he could actually then think critically about you know the numbers and the evidence and that sort of again it resonates with what um dr asim was saying last week about the evidence practice you know that there is um a necessary process by which we need to think critically and that's hard if we don't we're not like tony you know like being being engineers with the maths and science and physics and chemistry that you hit the nail on the head that there's an implicit trust you know, as patients, as consumers, we trust the information. But I think the take-home message here is to think critically, you know, to be always on your guard and be that critical consumer because you're your own advocate. Yeah. And it's just about questioning and not blindly following. So the advice may be absolutely correct. It might be the right thing for you at this point in time, but you don't have to believe that one source that you can go off and you can look and see what else what else is available what else can i do you know i remember when i had my gallbladder attack the first one the surgeon said we have to take it out and i just thought what else is available and he didn't have another option for me and i just said thank you very much i'll go away and i'll think about it and i did think about it and i didn't follow his advice and I had found other ways it took me a long time it took a lot of work it, I went through a lot of pain um but you know now 19 years down the line I still have my gallbladder whether that's a good thing or not I don't know <laughs> but you know it's a part of my body I don't want to let it go so easily but you have to be willing to to take that action and there is always a risk involved yeah, but we're not saying, you know, when you have a broken leg that you should be walking out the emergency department because sometimes the option presented to you is the preferred, you know, the medically responsible option. But I think the point that we're making is to ask the question. So hang on. So you say this, but what are my other options? You know, do I have a no option available? As you did, you had a no option available to you, such as not not having the gallbladder surgery. Hmm. So, you know, but this is this is obviously in Tony's journey. And, you know, we heard that he sort of came off the medication. I think, you know, both Jackie and I sort of 
take that with, you know, with some degree of caution Mm. that that's not general advice for everybody. That's obviously there were inherent risks that Tony was taking, but we, you know, perhaps uh, sort of strongly, you know, caution you to think critically and carefully about making such a similar decision as Tony. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody needs to, you know, we would, we personally would never advise anyone to, to follow Tony's lead in the sense that, you know, we're not doctors, we can't advise. But at the same time, people might look to Tony to think, well, there are other options and maybe this is something I can discuss with my doctor. And, you know, they can use this information to help their doctor help them. Mm. Yeah. And certainly, as we said, we're we're not doctors, but this is obviously one one person's and N equals one story where it actually worked in his um his favour. So, all kudos to to Tony and his story for really being inspiring about being, as we said, the critical consumer. Yeah, and being your own health advocate because hmm. you have to look after your own health, and ideally, yeah, we want to do that now before we're ill rather than wait mm. until something happens because it's it's much better to prevent than it is to cure. Yeah, and to have to re-engineer um, as we keep the engineering systems approach for, for Tony. So, yeah, better to sort of, you know, by design engineer your health, you know, to, to stay healthy rather than to have to re-engineer it after um, such a, a critical episode as Tony's. Yeah, and for him it was devastating because his whole life's career just stopped in that one moment Mm, it did but still he's doing good things now yes as a phc ambassador yeah and absolutely working with people yeah yeah absolutely so where can people get tony's show notes so the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 101 It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories 
and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.